You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials. Welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 37. I'm your host, Sarah, with my new co-host, Jeb Card. Jeb is joining us as a secondary co-host so that we can move the Archaeological Fantasies podcast to a weekly show as opposed to a bi-monthly show. This means that Ken will be hosting with me every other week and Jeb will be hosting with me in the in-between. Many of you may know Jeb Carr from previous episodes on Archaeological Fantasies where he's discussed topics such as the Mew Stones and general pseudo-archaeology in the field of archaeology. Jeb is a veteran of the archaeological field, spending most of his time studying Mayan archaeology and having a particular love for all things weird, pseudo, spooky, and Lovecraftian as they apply to archaeology. I hope you all will welcome Jeb with open ears and get ready to think critically. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Jeb, how's it going? Uh, Things are doing just fine over here in Ohio. Great. Um, So people may be wondering why I'm talking to Jeb and not Ken. Because Ken's in my basement. Locked in chains, as he should be. Um, But the real reason is, is that we have decided to go to a weekly show here with the Archie Fantasies podcast. And... Because of that, we've picked up a new co-host, and that person is Jeb Card. Jeb, introduce yourself to the nice people. Hi. Well, you may have heard me on a few episodes, and most of those episodes were five, six, seven, ten actual episodes long. Not really. They were <laughs> they double were episodes, though. They were long. They were long. And they're like, you talk a lot. Would you <laughs> like to do this? I was like, um, sure. We figured okay. eventually you'd run out of things to say if we just gave you your own yeah, podcast. Yeah, we will, we will find out. We will find out. <laughs> Um, but I do in, in the future also want to occasionally present to my own do as an assistant, uh, or excuse me, a visiting assistant professor at Miami university in Oxford, Ohio. Uh, and, uh, we may occasionally be bringing in some folks that I've worked with on various projects involving pseudoscience, archeology span and pseudoarchaeology and all these myths and mysteries that we talk about on this show. So, uh, we've got some possible guests coming up and we'll may talk about some of that. Um, but today I think we're just going to sort of maybe introduce me a little more and then we're going to talk, I think we're going to talk about the Loch Ness Monster because we're going to keep it serious <laughs> and then maybe something actually slightly, actually slightly less concrete, weirdly enough, as you will see. So, so you have been on the shows before in the past, but as some listeners may not have listened to those episodes yet. So sure. why don't you give us the the basic intro, you know, you've already mentioned you work at uh, Oxford in, in- uh-huh. Uh, yeah, Ohio. The, the, the Ohio Oxford, not so much the uh, the English Oxford. Oh, see, uh, I was and, just gonna let people think that it was. Yeah, of that. and then of course it's Miami, which is the you know the Miami of Ohio, not the Miami of of Florida. There, there you can buy T-shirts here that that literally say uh, Miami was a university when Florida was a Spanish colony, because in nice. fact. Miami was founded as the Western College in 1809, and then it gets its name from the Miami, a, a local indigenous name, a local indigenous group uh, that's primarily in Indiana, but, you know, those borders are, are imposed. Uh, I and Indiana do, doesn't recognize uh, tribes, so. I know. It gets into all kinds <laughs> of so, – which actually could be something interesting when we talk about uh, concepts of identity and, and – and, You know, we uh, should. We should do that. Future. That'd be a good but, one, yeah. um, And I have some ideas about that, too. So um, – 
I do a lot of stuff in, in um, Mesoamerica, in Central America. I have worked in North America primarily in, in contract work, although in some other capacities. And I went to Tulane University where I did my doctorate work on the first Spanish settlement in El Salvador, the first version of the Vieta, which is now known as Ciudad Vieja. I've also worked at some Maya sites. I recently gave a... Uh, a paper on a very important uh, artifact from El Salvador, which I'm waiting for them to kind of work press releases up. And if they don't, I will soon. Uh, so I don't want to like get into it too much, but it's not quite secret or anything. Um, and uh, I do this, that, and the other. And as you know, I found bits of the lost continent of Mew, which doesn't actually exist, <laughs> um, which I think we're not going to do a full follow-up episode. Yeah, just for our listeners who may not know, Jeb was, when Jeb was a guest, he came on and told us about some of the research he was doing on some objects called the Mu Stones, it's M-U Stones, uh, and how he had found some and was having some analysis done on the stones, and we thought would we'd be able to pull that off as a cliffhanger episode, and that's not how that worked out. But Jeb did get the analysis back, but yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's, so, uh, just as a, as a quick, like 30 seconds, basically this is the Atlantis of the Pacific discovery or one of them, there's a Maria and there's Mew and it, uh, it was, uh, sort of created and whatnot by Colonel James Churchward and, uh, may I should be talking on another podcast soon about that. We're, we're working that out. Um, but, uh, they got tied into the find of these quote unquote glyph stones found near Mexico, basically under modern day Mexico city. Uh, and the vast majority of them had disappeared. Uh, there were all these, these, these things. And then I found some in our basement here at Miami university. And so I have been studying them and historically, actually, uh, Dr. Robert Wicks of our art museum had written the book, not knowing we had these things here, which is weird, uh, but that's mm -hmm. how museums work. Uh, and I've shown them to him obviously since, but, uh, one thing we decided was, well, let's take them down to our, uh, microscopy lab, excuse me, have them look for various kinds of elemental, elemental concentrations and do a spectrum and that spectral analysis, spe uh, spectrum analysis. And basically um, what we were hoping for is that if the, the pigment had, uh, something unusual, like if it had like a lot of lead in it, I mean, that would be an obvious cue that it was made in a factory and it was lead paint and all of that. Right. And that generally did not seem, uh, to be the case. And in fact, uh, I'm literally looking at the sort of, uh, report I got from downstairs. There seems to be more potassium, sulfur, and a touch more iron in the pigment samples, but other than that, the rocks and the pigment are very similar. That actually is about what you'd expect if they were using some kind of local pigment. Now, this test was never to intend, are these things real or not? Uh, I have no reason to believe that they are that they existed much before 1920. Uh, they don't look like anything else in Mesoamerica. They're incredibly, and they're only found by basically one excavation, and they don't look like anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but if they had been store-bought paint, uh, William Niven, the excavator who found them, he went out there six out of seven days a week, or one day out of seven days a week, six days out of seven days. He had been renting for years from the landowners and paying the people who owned the land and their friends and family to dig there. And they would bring him artifacts that he would sell in a store. He had the biggest store in the 1920s that was selling artifacts to all sorts of people, especially foreigners in Mexico, which is, I think, partly maybe at the root of why, if he did fake them, he was in controversy. He was in uh, uh, conflict with uh, some of the emerging archaeologists like Manuel Gamio. 
so if he had been behind faking them, I would have to imagine the people would have been like, okay, they were doing it because I don't think he did it. Uh, I think he would have paid somebody to do it. They would have gone, well, could you buy the paint? And so if we had found store-bought – and given that these are being f- found on the land of basically you know, farmers, I don't think they would have bought paint to make 2,700 of these things. I think they would have asked for it and then he would have you – know, that would have been obvious. So it doesn't prove who made them or who didn't make them. I, as I said on the podcast last time, I'd strongly suspected that Niven had ordered them made. That's still quite possible, but there's no historical evidence of that, and this would have supported if it had gone the other way. It doesn't kill the idea, but I have to admit I'm leaning more towards what people at the time thought, that his workers who wanted to please him had basically salted the ground with these things because they were seen coming out of the ground. Um, So this is very much like the... Eka stones. Yeah, I think in that so. the person who collected them basically paid locals to bring them to him. Well, he wasn't paying for the actual stones. Like it wasn't like he was paying for, as far as we can tell, but he's paying for all kinds of work and he was, you know, renting the land from them and paying them for the rest of the work. And there was real stuff coming out of these excavations. Wow. So there were real artifacts on top of the muse stones. Well, in the, I don't know like what their literal relationship was because we don't have that information, but I mean, they're coming out of the same things. Yeah. And so, even if he's not literally paying, oh, I'll give you, you know, five pesos for that stone and five pesos for that stone. If this is a guy who's been employing you and your family and renting your land for years, right. you have a relationship with him. You have a you have a personal and you have a financial relationship with him. So I don't think it's quite as literally naked as it was with the Acombro figurines of West Mexico or the Ica stones of um, uh, oh god, is that Bolivia um, or is that Ecuador? I always can. I, I, now I'm going to get all in trouble. I think it's. Uh, <laughs> I can't save you. Sorry. Yeah, but uh, I'm just trying to remember. Actually, I'm going to look it up because I want to sound stupid. Well, I already have. It's too late. Um, and maybe it's Peru. It is Peru. Um, okay, I thought it was Peru. Yeah, because of course it's in the south. They're right near Nazca. Duh, it's the Ica province. I, I'm not thinking. Go. Anyway, um, I don't think it's literally the one to one, but I think it's a very similar relationship. Gotcha. Uh, it's it's a very similar one. Yeah. So that's that's the that's the follow up. Our tests didn't really give us anything. I mean, they gave us accurate information. That information right. didn't answer our questions. And I sort of said that was probably what was going to happen. I if you if you do wind back the tape, I I, I did say like I don't. This is not going to answer it. It's just going to give us a little more info to play with. Well, and I'm going to link in the show notes to the episode that you were on last, uh, since we did bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. But yeah, so I'm not hiding anything. Uh, I, I will say our initial results did suggest uh, possibly titanium in the pigment that wasn't in the rocks. And that was exciting because pig- titanium is not used for red, but it's white paint. And we're yeah. like, but then I, you know, titanium also shows up in igneous contexts, which is what this is it's yes. volcanic rock. Gotcha. So, and, and then basically there were some calibration issues with the machinery. They recalibrated it and not not with our tests. Like, they just generally were. And they got a whole bunch of things fixed and they wanted to make sure and they did more samples. And like, no, there's nothing really standing out here. So. Well, that's interesting though. And, and in fact, that so there we go. Like, if I wanted to be all dismissive, I would have said, well, there was titanium in it. I would have stopped. Right. Because that would have proved my point. But well, I. It's only recently that you had this kind of technology at your disposal, though, so. Yeah. Well, no, what I, what I mean, though, is even in December, the, the titanium actually was what I wanted. I was like, oh, that shows that he did it. 
<laughs> but but that's not the, the thing is is that's just not the case. It, well, now even if you had found titanium and it had ended up no. being a store bought paint, it still doesn't prove that he did it. It just proves that you have store bought paint. I I wanted to make sure, so we ran it again, and it's not sure. So uh, so I guess what I'm saying is is now like, if I was part of the big bad Smithsonian conspiracy, I would have run with the the titanium results rather than the inconclusive, which makes me look kind of wishy washy. I think it makes you look honest, honestly. Well, that's really where I, that's where I was going. Yeah. So. But, okay, so that's the update on the Moonstones. That's introducing Jeb. And all right, well, so let's just move on to the rest of the show. You want to talk about the Loch Ness monster and a really oh, funny I, story about it? I kind of always want to talk about the Loch Ness monster. Is that your thing? Are you the Loch Ness monster guy? No, well, I was actually. That was probably the. In all seriousness, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I believe it is a it is a cultural his, a cultural legend with some people lying about it, some people making mistakes. Blah blah blah. I think it was actually the gateway into all the weirdness, though, for me. Well, there you go. I was Everybody's that, got their thing, so. Yeah, I was like that five-year-old nerd, loved dinosaurs at that age, and da-da-da. And, of course, you know, in the 1970s, th there was a lot of interest in that. And, uh, oh, it's a living dinosaur. I'm pretty sure that's what took me from the, hey, here's all the science stuff part of the library to, in the Dewey Decimal System, the 000 section <laughs> of the library where they also keep all the goofy things. And I think that's what brought me over to the dark side was all of that. So I actually made sure when I went to the UK last summer for the first time that I visited uh, and and all that. And I actually, you know, I can I can point to some, some pictures in a blog post and a video of that stuff. But uh, last week, if I remember correctly, the Loch Ness, there were headlines all around the world, Loch Ness Monster Found. <laughs> And technically, this was actually kind of sort of true. Um, what happened was in, I, will, I believe it's 1970, and I'm not going to pull up the uh, a story, but you can find this. These were all over the press. There was a movie being made, uh, a Sherlock Holmes movie. And I think it's The Very Private Life of Sherlock Holmes is the name of it. I could be wrong. But anyway, in this movie, in it's two it's two Holmes stories, if I remember correctly. And one of the Holmes, not like, not original home stories, but uh, necessarily they, they borrow parts like so many right. movies do. But in one of them, Holmes investigates the Loch Ness Monster. And I'm not going to spoil it except that it's not an actual dinosaur. There's something else going on. It's very Scooby-Doo. Um, <laughs> but when they're making the film, the, the uh, famous director, Billy Wilder, who makes this movie, uh, they actually filmed at Loch Ness. Like they filmed at freaking Loch Ness. Right. And they built a life size. Well, okay. doesn't exist. So a purported life size, not even a model, like a stand-in, a, a thing, a, a set, a prop of this monster with big bulging eyes and two big horns and a back. And it actually, it kind of looks like if you know those pictures from when they went underwater and took pictures of in the 1970s, it looks like the quote unquote gargoyle head. And I don't think that's what it is, but it reminds me of that. And it's before that. So they built this thing and Wilder said, take the humps off. I don't like how it looks. And the people on set apparently like, um, it's going to sink if you do that. <laughs> We're just saying, which is exactly what happened. And so they did eventually film uh, another version of it in a tank somewhere, like on a set. But the, the, the Loch Ness Monster thing sank. The prop sank. And it was one of these big mysteries. And, you know, of course, well, uh, about a week ago, it was announced that a company that does underwater prospection with remote sensing, and I'm presuming it's sonar, side-scanning sonar, it looked like it. Yeah. It makes sense. It's water. Uh, 
was working with um, – there's a group at Loch Ness that does – they have the big museum there, but they're skeptical. It's Shine and others, and they do all kinds of – uh, science, look at nematodes and whatnot, but they're also the big tourism thing. In fact, some of the other little museums there don't like them because, like, why is our biggest tourist attraction here saying this thing isn't real? Why are they saying that it's a that's a it's a cultural thing? It's because they're honest. <laughs> but and they were the people that Google went to, you know. So anyway, they partnered. They found it. They found this thing underwater. And if you Google, if you put into your into images, you gotta see this. <clears throat> it's literally <laughs> obviously. Freaking Loch Ness monster on the bottom of Loch Ness. Well, but that's good, right? Well, it's good if you are, especially if you're not somebody who makes money off of trying to sell Loch Ness monster tickets, given that they can find the prop, but they can't find the actual non-existent beastie. Well, for those of us that are, you know, let's go to break real quick and then I'll wrap up that thought about how this is good for us, actually, as debunkers. No, I think it is good. Yes. The Archaeology and AL podcast presents a monthly series of lectures on all aspects of archaeology. These lectures are part of the Archaeology in the City program, hosted by the University of Sheffield in England, and are held at the Red Deer Pub near the end of the month. The podcast can be heard a few days later. Check out the Red Deer if you're in the area, or find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the show. And we're back, and we were talking about the Loch Ness and how it was technically discovered, or at least the prop of the Loch Ness was discovered, and... The point I was making before I went to break was, um, you know, we're, we're using, we assume sonar because I think that's pretty much the only thing that works on water at that depth. Um, but we're using a very scientific, uh, we're using a very scientific tool to look for the Loch Ness monster. And I know that the whole lake has been scanned before. Yes. And there was no, they weren't able to find any monsters that fit that description um but yet when they did it this time after the prop had sank they did find the prop which means the sonar is working and it can scan the lake so if we're finding the prop there you go so if we can find the prop and we can't find the monster then that says to me that there's probably no monster there but next mortal to be in the lake yes. as long as she has been Right. Now this is now this is size scan. So this is the same kind of and this is the reason why I think it's okay for an archaeology podcast as well. It's not just my weirdness that we've I was gonna say we need to tie this. Yeah, I mean this is the exact same kind of sonar that is routinely used to and they've actually found shipwrecks uh and even a, a plane crash wreck in the nice. lake. Um the same the same group using this. And I mean, if you look at that, that's that literally looks like the Loch Ness monster, because of course that's what it is. It's a prop. It doesn't have flippers or legs or anything. It's just the top of it. If you look at the image I just sent, but, um, it's the same kind of technology. It's not for finding fish. It's for finding, um, you know, solid returns on the bottom of, of, of the lake. And, and archaeologists use this all the time. But of course, frankly, if there were big creatures dying and whatnot, you would find them too. Um, so yeah, no, I, I do think this is, 
this is again very much like that that XKCD that that online uh, <laughs> comic where it's got a graph of you know the 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 number of cameras that are being carried around by human beings every day and how they've grown into the billions and how the caption is slowly imperceptibly the answer to uh, why nobody gets a picture of the Loch Ness monster flying saucers or Bigfoot has been answered. <laughs> okay, so any any last thoughts about? Nessie? No, no. I just thought that was very cool, and it actually is technically underwater archaeology, and it Which actually is a real finds thing. an answer. Yeah, no, and uh, like I, underwater underwater archaeology is a big thing. It's actually taken off a lot in the last couple of years. I've got a lot of friends that are doing it now. Oh yeah, well, I, th I think it's gotten not easier, but the technology allows you to do more. Uh, and, uh, I think that's, there's probably some other legal reasons, but no, I think it's very important. I mean, it's, 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 it's really cool stuff. I'd love to do it. It's just not in my skill set. Yeah. It, it actually takes a different set of skills, but it's still using archaeology and archaeological prints to cover all kinds of cool stuff, not just oh, yeah. shipwrecks and plane crashes, but you know, whole underwater cities and lost villages and all kinds of cool stuff. Oh yeah, ab absolutely. We had a, a visiting assistant professor here who had eventually in her academic life turned into a medical anthropologist, but she was here for a year and she had been an underwater archaeologist, I think through a master's maybe, definitely in her earlier life. And I had her come in and talk to my intro to methods and theory course and it was fascinating, but the differences were actually not that radical. Yeah. You know, like in terms of some of the basic principles and concepts. So, um, no. And, and if we uh, – one of the guests we're potentially, uh, potentially going to bring on, he does underwater archaeology. Um, and I don't want to say it because, you know. But uh, he's interested, but we have to schedule it. Uh, and we could obviously have him talk about that. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, so let's move on to another topic. Let's talk about – which is kind of similar, really. Um, the, new, uh, the Newport Tower – sorry – Nope, not yes. tablet. Um, Ken and I have touched on it very briefly in some mm -hmm. previous episodes. I, I can't even remember what episode numbers because we just mentioned them in passing. Um, but it does kind of tie into last episode where Ken was telling us about his not vacation. And the Newport Tower is an interesting piece of faux viking heritage or at least the fringe wants to believe it is part of evidence that there were vikings i believe it's in the midwest um but it turns out that when you do the actual research on it and you read the actual archaeology that's been done on it it's uh it's a windmill isn't it well, that's see, that's the fascinating thing, and and you've written a, a blog post about this. I've written a tiny bit in in a chapter here, a chapter there. Uh, so we're talking about Newport, Rhode Island. Yes. Uh, so not is, in the Midwest. No. Well, well, I think the people who want Vikings to be in the Midwest, I mean, the whole idea is to get them farther south. But it's in Newport, Rhode Island, um, and it is uh, in a nice green little park, uh, surrounded by uh, uh, by um, historic homes, and it was a windmill, uh, and it was built. Uh, the historic records appear to uh, be by Governor Benedict. I think it was Governor Benedict Arnold, yes. not the one who tries to sell it. Tries to sell the United West Point off to the Brits, not the traitorous. No, one. but he is related. Yeah, it's an earlier one. Yes, and uh, so it's been known for a long time. But by the early 19th century, there's two things that go on. One, people start digging in it for treasure. 
Now, actually, something I only found out relatively recently, within the last six months or so, I mean, I'd always heard this, but I'm not a New England. I'm from upstate New York, which is, it's kind of the same thing. How common the idea of treasure hunting and just treasure hunting being everywhere. You know, you hear about pirate treasure and stuff <laughs> like that. That whole idea, from what I can tell, comes from a European tradition of going treasure hunting. And when settlers come here, they basically have to come up with a way to keep doing this idea of treasure hunting. But they don't want to, like, say, well, we're looking for stuff from ancient, you know, indigenous people or whatever they would have called them at that time in the, in the 19th century because they're like, well, they're not going to have gold doubloons and all that. So you either get pirate treasure or you get weirder things. And, in fact, Joseph Smith with his shoe hat and, like, looking at stones in it, that's <laughs> that was part of what he did. That, that That's actually yes. his background. He, he has a very colorful background. Yeah, and that's a completely other episode I'm not sure I want to do. Um, uh, no. But but no, but that's uh, but that's that, that's his background. So people dug into it. But by the early history, it starts to people sort of say, ah, this is Vikings. And there is a long history of the idea of Vikings being in North America and New England. You hear some of the folks like on the History Channel and whatnot who rail against the Columbus myth. You know, all the history books say it's Columbus first, Columbus first. Like. Actually, we, they don't need more, but whatever. Well, not only that, Jason Colavito's gone, and he's looked at like a whole bunch of old textbooks from a century plus ago. He's like, they talk about the Vikings. Like, they totally talk about the Vikings. Which, given that it's putting white people in North America, of course they were. <laughs> you well, know? you know, I'm of two minds of that. Um, either way you go, that's white people in America. But um, They also have to be right. Exactly. Like... I realized that about a century ago it was speculation, but we we have it confirmed now that there the Vikings did have a settlement here before Columbus landed. Um, eh, uh, we uh, Ken and I have talked about how that kind of stuff gets used in a very twisted and negative way with yes. certain um, superiority groups. So, you know, I don't think this whole Viking in America thing. I don't think it's started off that dark but i think it has um, definitely been gotten twisted that dark. i don't know i i think well so and we'll talk about this but the the excavator the the archaeologist the grad student who went and excavated the newport tower he didn't put it in that he argued there was a racial component but rather than it be against native americans or anything like that it was old english settlers mm. in north in in, in providence uh, who were reacting to the influx of people from other parts of Europe, the Irish, yes. the Portuguese, et cetera. And they're like, oh, how can we like make this history whiter than white? Right. Back, uh, when, and, uh, back when you could be black but still have white skin. Right. And so I think I, – I actually do think it kind of had elements of that. It wasn't what you see today. It, it's you know, not neo-Nazi because it doesn't make as much sense in the you know, early 19th century obviously. Um but I, I do think there's some of that. And, and then it, as it continues, uh, I, I think it picks it up and picks it up and picks it up. And it doesn't have to be tied directly to neo-Nazi groups as much or white supremacist groups as much as a larger ideology. It's of the sort larger of ideology that is the issue. Not, yeah. not so much like I uh, – so this is slightly off topic. But sure. I would never say the Newport Tower, the people use the Newport Tower as a sign of racial superiority. However – Arguing that the Newport Tower is a sign, however, it does get used by certain racial superiority groups. Yeah, no, I mean it's um, part of a bigger spectrum. 
Exactly, but it itself is not. No, no, I don't. I don't think anybody's ever said. Well, we might talk about one guy who kind of talked about that way a little, but yeah, uh, but that's that guy, you know. Yeah, but it's not. It's not much of it. You're right. It's not like say the Salutrian hypothesis, which you guys did a show on, which is far. And I think that's because it's newer. It's newer and it's it's more techy. You know, we're talking about genetics at that point, and genetics are like the thing right now. Well, I think that's definitely part of it, but I think also because it's newer, where since this is older, it has some of like the harsh edges sort of filed off. Yeah. There's like, too. yeah, I mean, well, Kensington Rune Stone's the same sort of thing. Yeah. So a little background on the Newport Tower for people who don't know what it is. Um, it's the Newport Tower, as you said, it's in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. It's actually part of a park. It's been preserved yes. and it's been dug more than once looking for evidence of Vikings. Um, and neither excavation has found anything that suggests that it's anything other than an early New England windmill of some writing. And in fact, they pretty much proved that's what I found fascinating by this. So things I've been schooling myself over the last X number of years is on archaeologists actually responding to these claims. Because one of these things you hear from a couple of different angles today, the the people who, you know, are considered alt or pseudo or fringe, whatever word you want to use, sometimes will say, you won't listen to us. And I have often said in the past, do you really want us to? Because well, do you understand what's going to happen? I I want to listen. Yeah, and but but we you know but there's a legitimate claim there because we've talked about this. A lot of people don't want to touch this stuff. Well, the thing is, is before about 1960, that was actually a bit more common. And so things like the Michigan relics or the Tucson Roman artifacts or this case or Patty's Caves, which we should definitely have Ken talk about because if nothing else, there's been suggestions that he's not always super welcome there. Um, uh-huh. But, and we have actually talked about uh, Mystery Hill. Yeah, exactly. I think he may have talked about it on there. I couldn't remember if you had. Yeah. Uh, people yeah. used to deal with this more. And I think they are again. So the fact that people are testing hoax artifacts, they're testing crystal skulls, they're testing Salutrian stuff. No, it is. It really is. But there was a period, I think, during the professionalization of archaeology when they were, that was so close to the being in the past and it was so problematic and archaeology was finally getting on its own two legs that they're like, no, 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 just stay away from that crap. But you know, and- so, but the first, the first dig that I have on record here was done in 1957 by um, William uh, S. Godfrey. 50, 51, 51. Okay, so I have the, num- yeah. the date wrong. But either yeah. way, it was done by William S. Godfrey uh, right. Jr. Yeah, he and was, go ahead. Right about that time, though, there was a paradigm shift in the field of archaeology as well. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think a lot of this uh, hyper-secrecy within archaeology is a byproduct of that paradigm shift where we started hoarding nation and didn't feel like as professionals, we had time to talk to people. And I think that adversely affected the field. And I think that's part of why the fringe and the alternate history people, why they have, why they it's had gained so much traction. Yeah. I, I feel like they're starting to lose that traction well, um, thanks to, to modern media, but there's a reason why they were able to get the traction in the first place. Well, but part of the problem is I, I don't disagree. I think some of it's, uh, I think some of it's completely unavoidable though. So, uh, I mean, if you think about who's doing archeology, span say in 1890, uh, nobody, very few people are getting paid. Very few people are getting paid. Uh, they are, um, you know, they're Lord this and count that, or they're antiquarians, like they're the local clergymen, or and they started to become professors, but a lot of them were independently wealthy. Some were right. not. 
some were not. For them, there's in essence, they don't need to hoard it for currency. When you start to get professionally basically paid to do it, it's not that you're being paid for the information, but at the same time, you have to put out a product. And that product, of course, is, is knowledge, is information. And so I, I do think there is increasingly that. I also think, this does sound really weird, but I think it's very true. And you can see this in a number of cases. Um, as we start to professionalize and as society starts to take archaeology seriously and we realize these are non-renewable resources, these are things that, like, if you destroy it, it goes away, yep. we realize we have to protect it. Yep. Well, you have to protect it. And I think that they're in, wow, we are so off topic, but I no, feel I don't like, think we, I don't think we are though. That's the thing. But anyway. I feel like there's a happy medium that can be struck between preserving a site of significance, still sharing that information with the people. I am a big advocate for, um, uh, open sharing of information. Well, but there's a difference between information, but maybe and, not releasing like all the minor details. Well, it's not even information. See, I think that's the thing. Like, I think maybe very, I don't, I don't, okay. I don't think professional archeologists hide information. I think what they not do anymore, is no. Well, I don't think they ever hit it. I think what they do is they were paid to give it to somebody else. They were paid to give it to each other. And I don't mean that in a secrecy sense. I mean in a, well, you have to get tenure. To get tenure, writing a coffee table book that people are actually going to read with big pictures in it is not going to be worth squat. You have to write this article and this article and right. this article that shows that you're a legitimate scientist and not some goofball like the kinds who go around looking for crystal skulls. You actually know what you're doing, that you're providing something for science, that you're progressing humanity, blah, 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 blah. Um, well, and I think that's why a lot of professionals today don't like to deal with a lot of the fringe because, like you said, there's only a certain number of hours in a day. And almost everybody has some kind of specialization that they're focusing on anyway, which means people are constantly doing their own research and trying right. to get their own material out there. They don't have time to stop everything and give attention to something that is obvious to us is fake or is a hoax or is just simply misunderstood. But is not obvious to the common man, right? The, the it, common person. Now, what I think has happened, and 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 this is really interesting because I think the the work by Godfrey is, in the one hand, the last gasp. So from about eighteen ninety to about nineteen fifty, or at least about nineteen sixty is the latest, but about fifty something did look at these things because there was sort of a well, what if it is? They weren't. There was not enough known to say that this is real or not real, right? Um, and so they actually had to go look into it. By about then, they didn't have to anymore. Now, we have started to look at our own profession and its history, and we realize that that's actually really important, and it helps us understand who and what we are and what we're doing. This stuff has come back in. So, when, so for example, um, uh, Walsh and, and Sachs and all that look at the microstriations on the crystal skull. They don't just look at the microstriations the crystal skull and go, well, that's a fake. Right. They look into where did it come from, what does it mean, why did this happen, what does it tell us about the nature of science, the nature of uh, Victorian and early 20th century society, the well, nature of archaeology itself. they were able to break itself. it down into manufacturing periods and they were able to yeah. line up the skill sets used to create the skulls with different manufacturing yes. areas. I mean, yes. I thought that was really fascinating yeah. how well they were able to skulls were produced. So there's the technical component and there's the cultural and historical component. And, and so a lot of what this show does, a lot of what my writing does, a lot of what Ken's writing does, a lot of what your writing does, all these various things is 
um, looking at these topics as scholarly topics in themselves. In other words, the sociology, the anthropology of archaeological fantasy, rather than simply just saying, well, that's not true, but that's true. And so what Godfrey does a little of that. When he goes and digs, so basically what happens is in the 1940s, there was an archaeologist that worked in South America by the name of Philip Means who started sort of agitating. He died before it happened. He, wanted, he thought that it was a Viking structure or something like that, maybe even earlier, and he wanted to dig it up, and they wouldn't give him permission. After he died, he put a book out, and he dies a few years after, and there starts to be this real kind of, we should do this, we should do this, we should do this. Right. There was at the meetings of Society of American Archaeology, the essays, a discussion, a panel back when it was a lot smaller, well, should we do this? And there was not a full consensus. There ended up being a vote that they said that they should, but not everybody agreed because a number of people were saying, this is not worth your time. You have so many cool, real things to do. Don't bother. But William S. Godfrey, he was a graduate student and he was associated with Harvard's Peabody Museum. He decided to go do it. Now, what should be noted, and I think this is really important, he was a lineal descendant of Benedict Arnold, the guy who supposedly built this 17th century um, windmill tower. And so what he did is he started putting together plans to go dig this thing. Now, we can talk about after the break what he found and stratigraphy and all that, but he also laid it out in a sociological and historical framework. Where did these claims come from? He was the one who suggested that this may have been a way of creating a fictive sort of for the more northern European ancestral yes. settlers in, in Rhode Island in the wake of new immigration waves that they felt were influenced. You know, of course, there are people who, you know, killed and pushed off the people who were already there, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> um, but they see this new immigration wave coming in and like, well, we have to sort of, I don't think it was literally said this way, but he argues that that was kind of part of that milieu. And so he was looking at it sociologically as well. And he goes into some other things I don't necessarily uh, agree with, but he's like, okay, you know what? Let's go test this thing and find out what's actually there. And unlike my moose stones, he actually found evidence. And again, we can talk about this after the break of what's there. He pretty much answers the story. And I actually use this example in my classes and uh, how we do excavation because I think it's a really nice way of taking a look at it. And it's in a literal mystery. And of course, as you said, there were two excavations. Yes. You would think one would be enough, but apparently it was not. Yeah. And the second one, yeah, the second one's really interesting, I think, too. So, so let's get into that after yeah. uh, the break, I think. Yes. Telling a different story to the traditional lines of archaeology, the Anarchaeologist podcast seeks the stories and ideas that are often overlooked or not considered real archaeology. Video games, anarchism, and archaeology in the middle of hostile areas. Host Tristan doesn't search under the rocks, he destroys them. Available on iTunes every fortnight. And we're back. And real quick, I just want to go over what the two uh, excavations did find at the tower uh, when they were done. So uh, Godfrey published his his research in 1957, which is why I got my dates mixed up. And um, 
Godfrey's is interesting. I think you wanted to touch on this too, because of the soil that he had that he discovered around the structure. Um, and I like this, this quote from him. He says, quote, we cleared the area with great care, but found the yellow clay as before, completely undisturbed, no signs of foundations, no post holes, no Norse artifacts. Meaning that when they, when they were able to get the, the soil down to where it needed to be and had cleared it away, they were not finding evidence of any other structure other than the tower. And we've talked about this in past episodes, how the foundation of a building or a stone, or, uh, sorry, a wooden structure, or even a stone structure really, leaves a foot in the soil. And those footprints are incredibly hard to fake. This is what Ken's always talking about when he says you can't fake a site. Because features in the soil are impossible to put there and then bury back over. So what he's what Godfrey's saying in this quote here is that there is absolutely no evidence of anything being here before that tower was put there. Right. Um, and then to back that up, the artifacts that he found um, were pottery sherds. Iron nails, clay tobacco pipes, buttons and buckles that all trace from Scotland, English or an Eng or the English colonies and dated between the 17th and the 19th centuries. And, um, and I think he found he found a gun. He found gun flint associated directly. And my favorite is he finds a shoe print. Yes, the boot, the boot print. That is literally the square type of shoe that would fit the cloth. I mean, yeah. I have not found shoe prints or footprints. I oh, have yeah, found. That's cool. Well, I have found, oh God, I have found something that's not too far. Oh, I have found tile imprints. So at, at Ciudad Vieja, where you found, we, there would have been ceramic tile. We have found ceramic tile. We have also found where ceramic tile had been and then had been removed, but it had made a stain on yep. the soil. And one even that had different color. So it was probably two different kinds of tile in like a checkerboard pattern. So that nice. was amazing. We also found with remote sensing, not footprints, but an area that clearly in the remote sensing had been tramped down by carts and horses and oh, feet cool. and all that. So you could see the pathway that was right alongside of where they were doing a lot of business. We found a tavern. We found a iron forge and all of that. But I've never literally found a footprint. Now, I have found fingerprints in pottery. Yeah, I was going to say the coolest thing I've ever found was fingerprints in pottery. And I still think that's cool it is cool uh, i think that's one of the coolest things i've ever discovered anyway so the next excavation was 2006 and 2007 uh, it was sponsored by the chrononostic research foundation mm -hmm. they hired a crm firm to come out and do the excavation and they basically backed up everything that godfrey has said back in 1957 yeah, yeah and, um, and, and in case I, I don't know i mean you've got there's the crm podcast little side note right uh that's all about that but for some of our listeners who may not know what that is that refers to contract resources management which involves environmental and cultural historical protection laws and these are companies or nonprofits that uh work to fulfill these these laws and um did I, yeah cultural resource management and they uh they do all this stuff uh but therefore higher. And we talked about this with the Roswell one relatively recently, the same kind of uh, company. So we're seeing a very similar it sort of thing. It is a very here. similar thing because they put out this article, they put out their research, uh, their findings, and the group that sponsored it wasn't 100% happy with the findings. Right. Yeah. The initial findings in this case, the, the cultural resource management firm came back and said, um, 
they, they had done some remote prospection. They found a few things, and they were, and there were these anomalies. And so they were able to kind of go, oh, that's interesting. Let's dig. And then they found nothing that contradicted what had been found earlier. Yeah. They and they did. said that. They pretty much openly said that. Yeah. Uh, like you said, the though, with the – I think they used the magnetometer out there. They were able to find out the history of the park. So yes. the, the landscape of the park itself, they were able to find, uh, I think, uh, walkways, pathways, some yes. old uh, house, some old structure and- – Prince. I, I think that's neat. They may have been the ones who, in addition to historical records, actually also found evidence of basically in the center of the tower for treasure, or that may have been Godfrey. Now, of course, here's the thing. I, and, and if I was a uh, somebody who didn't want to believe these findings, one thing I might say is, well, of course, Godfrey's got a look at him. He's an elite. He's got, you know, Benedict Arnold in his background, blah, blah, blah. He has he has a point of view. That's a legitimate criticism, actually. I don't think it means his work's bad at all. I think it's very good. But, you know, I would raise that. If, if, if the shoe was on the other foot, I would point that out. If yeah, somebody's like, I want to some... find Vikings and my name is Olaf Sigurdsson, you know, <laughs> I, I, I and I was like the, the heir at Leif Erikson. I want to, you know, demean right, right, people right. from Scandinavia. So I'm not being all that way. Uh, but secondly, um, somebody could go, well, the evidence must have been in the center of the tower. And that was all dug up. And at that point. That's literally the lack of evidence. No, that's, 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 that's moving the that's moving that's that's the that's Vikings in the gap. Right. Yeah, exactly. In this case, an actual gap. It's moving the goalpost, and that's yeah. just unacceptable. It's not – well, yeah, no, it's unacceptable. I mean, deal with it. Um, yeah, so but uh, so with the last group, um, after they turned in their findings to the Chrononostic Research Foundation, um, there were addendums added to the report. Oh, and they also did um, some carbon dating uh, to the mortar that holds the tower together, which – Oh, did they? Yes, I, I did not remember that. Was it? Oh no, was that Godfrey? No, it's right here. Hang on. Do, 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 do. Radio carving. They did radio carbon dating. Yeah. Um, on the mortar that was bonding the stones together. So I, I am on track here. And they got a date back of 1665, which is literally like five years off what the history says. Right. Exactly. Um, but it's it's an absolute date, so that tells us pretty much pinpoint. Yeah. You know when the bricks were put together with the mortar. Yeah. So the structure itself is somewhere in that date. Yeah. And if you um, go there today, some places call it the Newport Tower. Others, like especially the official ones, are like it's the old stone mill. Yeah, it's got several names, including the old stone mill and uh, the Tudor Toto Mill, a uh, couple other little ones. Yeah. But it's because it's been around forever. Well, I think they're also trying to tamp down the uh, the other ideas. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you if you know the U-Haul Corporation, they actually have it in their big line of mysteries where they've also got like yes, like Champlain do. Monsters and Area 51 and Roswell and some other things. And that's actually one of them. And thank you for that, U-Haul. Thank yeah. you. Well, they actually were involved with some of this. So all this was going on at the same time. U-Haul? And like the U-Haul, they, they did a they did a sort of dedication of that where image. Where do you find these things out? Um, it was on the, it was actually, I think on the Chrononostic Research Foundation's website cause they were involved with it. It's <laughs> awesome. So these were all going on at the same time. And one might argue that the dig increased the profile. Didn't find anything. This is true. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Cause like you were saying earlier, this is, I mean, granted the CRM firm was hired to do this. So they, you know, they chose to take the job. They made a bid on it, but 
they're putting their, they decided to take their professional training and apply it towards something that is seen as a hoax or a mystery. And I think that's great. And I'm, it's okay that it maybe raised the profile of the Newport tower in general, because the conclusion is it's not a Viking tower. Right. However, there is some, like I said, some addendum to the report that was put in by uh, Jan Barstead, where she draws a very strange to me conclusion that somehow the tower was built around 1125 and that it was an observatory based on window orientation. Somehow it lines up something. And as Ken and I have pointed out in the past, you can line up any two points. That's kind of the definition of a line. Well, I think that, uh, so I, I mean, I, I actually have not a massive background in archaeoastronomy. It's not like I've published on archaeoastronomy, but I actually took uh, coursework in archaeoastronomy, in Mesoamerican archaeoastronomy specifically when I was right. at Tulane. Uh, some of my graduate sort of scut work was to actually put together a bibliography. So I actually read a lot on this topic. And so uh, I have not, I, I've read what you're talking about. And I didn't read it to say, is this true or not? I kind of was glossing over because at that point, I'm like, that's not really what I was after <laughs> uh, in the Barstad thing. But there, this is a common pattern of, again, I'm not saying this is what Barstad's doing. No, uh, But no. there are others who have. For example, Arturo Poznanski, Arthur Poznanski did this uh, or something that reminds me of this. I'm not saying it's the same thing. Um, with Bolivia, with Tiwanaku in Bolivia, um, where you – a drawn line B, and you say, "Ah, oh, this is pointing at something that would have been the sky." Well, when would it have been the sky? This is this is Graham Hancock. Oh, this crap! Yeah, right. With the with the the, the thing now, for example, with the case of Ponsanski, and again, I have not like analyzed Barstad's take on this, so I'm not giving a judgment on it simply because I can't. Um, but with the example with Ponsanski, um, uh, Tony Avini. Anthony Avini, uh, who uh, has, uh, you know, uh, the very famous archaeoastronomer was at Colgate, and he briefly uh, actually was a guest lecturer or a guest professor for a year at um, Tulane, uh, not when I was there, unfortunately, but a lot of people I know him are there. He points out that unless you have precise control over which part of a doorway, which part of a monument, what part of the horizon you're pointing at, you can't do this. That was his big revolution that kind of made archaeoastronomy starting in the 1970s respectable again uh -huh. was to be super precise. You can do these things, but you have to show, A, were they at least trying to do this? Was this something they were remotely interested in? B, can you really show that somebody would have been standing there and looking over there? Mm -hmm. If you're just like, oh, well, I'm in the building and I'm using the, the, the edge of a doorway. Well, at that point, that opens up any amount of the sky. Exactly. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's what's going on here. Uh, it, again, I, I'm not evaluating it. It doesn't appear to be. Um, she seems to draw her conclusions based on window orientation overall, um, making the case that two windows line up for the sunset on the winter solstice, which is whatever. Everything lines up with the damn solstice at this point. But to make that alignment, she ignores other windows that are visibly filled in. I mean, it's like one of those, yes, there's a window there and it's been bricked up, those kind of things. Right. Um, so it's another one of those cherry picking make to get a story to line up properly. Well, and, and again, I, I can't, I, I have not looked at that specific part of this, uh, but that's not unusual. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very common tactic used by the fringe and for people pushing alternative stories. But talking about stories, 
tell us a little bit about how this connects with Lovecraft. So, um, like Jason Colby, you've had on before, I occasionally write about, and I think he's actually very important for understanding Stuart archaeology, the pulp writer Howard Phillips Lovecraft. And of course, this isn't in his neck of the woods. I mean, he spends most of his life in Providence. He went out there with friends, and he became obsessed with this thing. He loved it. I mean, I've actually seen his notes. He took measurements. He wanted to put it in a story, which didn't end up happening during his life, but... Um, he uh, he did do this, and it got worked into what was called a posthumous collaboration, which is basically trade uh, his publisher trading on his name instead. <laughs> uh, but he liked the idea of it being all Vikings. He loved that because he was really friggin' racist, and he also did like sort of hyper diffusion across the Atlantic sort of things, um, and. That's what attracted him to him. But by the time he's talking about it in his notes, it becomes uh, ethereal and inhuman builders, a sunken city. So basically, he was firing his imagination. He didn't believe these things. But for him, as soon as he'd see that, it, uh, it, it, it turns, you know, something's weird and unusual and archaeological. It becomes this, uh, this sort of bizarre supernatural thing. And I think we see that in a lot of our what, what, what's being talked about on this show. Now, it ends up, in case you're curious, in the posthumous collaboration, The Lurker at the Threshold mm. with August Derleth, uh, which is not very good. Um, <laughs> but basically, he uses it to fantasize. And again, he's he did believe it was weird and strange. It's why he enjoyed it. But I think you see that, like, so Vikings, you mentioned medieval astronomy. There's another group that argues it's Elizabethan in, pure, in period, but not what they say. Right. So like, they call it a horologium thing, which is, what is, what is that? I, I think it involves time and astronomy, but it's a, an interesting word that I'd have to go look up precisely. It's, it's timey, spacey, wacy, timey, wimey. Um, something like that. <laughs> uh, there, uh, Godfrey himself, I mean, he's like, it's a windmill, but he's like, it's a really nice one. He actually wondered if it was sort of like also like a nice sitting room or, or, you know, like a, almost like a second house or something. And I don't think there's any evidence for that or against it. That'd be a weird place to put one. But who knows? People are weird. Yeah, you know. Um, I've heard Chinese. I have heard Chinese. I think I've heard Phoenician. Of course, you've heard Phoenician. Uh, and I'm sure there. I'm sure there's one I'm for, I'm I'm not aware of. Um, so I do have a quote that I really like from the article, um, from the Barstead article, um, and I love it because it just sums everything up so perfectly. Because um, the Newport Historical Society basically came out and said, you know, they, it's just a great quote. Anyway, they said, we're 99%, 99.9% sure the tower was built as a windmill by governor Benedict Arnold in the 17th century. When asked about the remaining 1.1% of doubt, the member said, Oh, well, the public does so love a good mystery. We'd like to leave a little bit for them. And I'm like, that just kind of sums it up perfectly. It's because it is a park. It is part of a, the city it is kind of a tourist draw. You know, it's it's okay to go there and maybe be like, ooh, that's cool, isn't it? I wonder what it is. But when you're given evidence, it's one thing to continue to dream about it and maybe write a story about it like Lovecraft tried to do. But you shouldn't issue that for the evidence that you've been handed, you know? Yeah, and 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 that this is one of these things that it, it, I think is very difficult to deal with because, there, like you said, there are different pressures. There's economic pressures. There's there's local interest pressures. Right. Uh, it's part of the cultural identity of the group. Yeah. The local society group. Yes. Right. And, and 
but at the end of the day, there's there's there is a literal physical reality. I mean, there's a friggin' boot print for Christ's sake. Right. In in the soil cool. that runs under the damn thing, along uh, alongside gun flints. I mean, pretty much the only thing they would need. Yeah, would radiocarbon be, dates are pretty solid. Radio, radiocarbon dates. Yeah, I mean, all of this, and 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 yet, here we are. This is, of course, not the last one. In fact, there's another one we may talk about in the future. Again, with a contract um, effort that goes into a very weird and controversial one. Uh, and we may save that one for a little closer to Halloween, I'm thinking, actually, if we do that little teaser, it may or may not happen. But um, <laughs> I was going to say, you're saving all your good ideas for Halloween, man. There's, I, there's I, only well, four weeks in Halloween. <laughs> I, I, I know. I told I, – I, my students were doing a project recently, and I forget what it was. But at some point I had to go, well, as you all may have guessed, I'm kind of partial to Halloween. <laughs> I was picking up on that. Just saying. I was picking um, up on that. Yeah, but no, but this one actually very much would. It's, it's part of what I think we would do around then. Um, but yeah, it, it's that, it's, it's that, and the museums have this, you know, when they, when they bring in, uh, exhibits that are about pop culture and there's always that debate, what do you do? You know, it's what people are interested in, but at the same time we have real evidence. So yeah, if, and if I it mean, was, if it was easy, we wouldn't have to talk about it. This is true. And it's good to talk about these kind of things because it's good for people to be aware of it and it's good for people to understand how evidence is used to get to the truth of the matter. Um, but it's good that people see how evidence works and how reality works yeah. and to also see how personal biases can continue to drive an idea forward even after it has been shown to be false. Oh, yeah. Well, and that gets back to the whole pulling a stake out of Dracula. It never ends. Uh, <laughs> I think this has been a fantastic show and i like this whole this whole hosting co-hosting guest hosting thingamabob it's kind of fun right um and so i'd love to keep doing this and we will i think be doing more of this in the future and uh i think we've kind of killed this thing oh yeah no yeah so yeah thanks for being on Jeb. yeah well thank you and uh i think we'll look forward to some other very interesting topics and bring on some guests some new some new folks and uh see how it goes great all right talk to you later all right Bye. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.